Why do we fast, but you do not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? The prophet Isaiah's words reflect a familiar longing, the longing of a people whose prayers and supplications remain unanswered. In every religious tradition, including our own, there is a sense in which all religious practices are an attempt to get God's attention and convince God to grant a request. We fast not only to prove to God that we are worthy, but to give God a reason to listen to us in the first place. We know that God has a heart for those who are hungry and thirsty and who are approaching death. So we give up food and water and dress ourselves in sackcloth, in burial fabric, and put ashes on our heads, the very dirt of the grave, in order to win God's attention and affection. But often, even our best efforts go unheeded. Some of the oldest parts of the Bible, the Psalms, and the parts often called the, the historical books, they include lots of references to fasting, from the earliest days of the Israelite religion, God's people would fast whenever they or someone they loved was sick or in trouble, perhaps being pursued by an enemy. And likewise, the whole community would fast when a calamity struck, a, a famine or a disaster or the approach of an invading army. But setting aside particular time each year for a collective fast... That was a much later addition to the religious life of Israel. Only after the city of Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians, only after the temple had been burned down and the people were carted off in exile, did God's people as a nation begin to observe these appointed fasts on particular days of the year. Those days were commemorations of those tragedies, at least at first. On the day when the city was besieged, God's people would fast. On the anniversary of the fall of the walls, the burning of the temple, the final deportation, each time God's people would fast. It sounds a little strange to us these days, but God's people made sense, theologically, of the terrible things that had happened to them by associating those things with their faithlessness. God's people didn't want to make the same mistake again. They didn't want to suffer like that again. So they were always sure to create and follow that succession of liturgical fasts. But those fasts weren't working. The prophet Isaiah writes at a time when God's people were being ruled by the Persians. The Persians had come and set them free from the Babylonians, but in exchange had levied such steep taxes as to cripple God's people during that period of Reconstruction. Several prophets contemporary to Isaiah give us a glimpse into what life was like during that period when Jerusalem was being rebuilt. Zechariah describes that time as a great struggle, a time with wide unemployment. When the security of the city was in question, when enemies could just come in and steal what little God's people had. 
Another contemporary Haggai notes that at the same time they were rebuilding the city, the land was stricken with a terrible famine. He notes that God's people sowed much but harvested little, eating but never being full. Nehemiah likewise writes that things got so bad that God's people even sold themselves and their children into indentured servitude in order to buy enough seeds to plant for another harvest. Yet through all of that, God's people kept saying their prayers and observing those fast, expecting that God would notice. But instead of getting better, things only got worse. What were they doing wrong? Why wasn't God hearing their prayers? With damning specificity, Isaiah explains why. Day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and observed the ordinances of their God. The prophet explains for us that God's people were saying all the right words, but it seems they had forgotten how to put those words into practice. Look, the prophet says, you serve your own interests on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Such fasting will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush? and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? During those appointed fasts, it seems that the landowners would come together and do all the things that the religion expected them to do. But at the same time, those indentured, those indentured servants back home were forced to work extra hard to make up for their master's absence. That kind of fasting doesn't bring people closer to God. You can't convince God to answer your prayers for rain or a fruitful harvest if you're forcing your neighbors to sell their children into slavery in order to feed their families. So why fast at all? If fasting isn't about going through the motions of humility in order to convince God to act, why would anybody bother with it? We fast because giving up food or water or dressing up in burial cloths or covering ourselves with dust and ashes, all of that is a way to bring ourselves just a little bit closer to our own mortality, which is where we find God has been waiting for us all along. We enact a ritual that approximates our own death in order to internalize the truth that God is to be found and thus is to be pursued at the margin of life, in that narrow boundary between sufficiency and deprivation. When we too live in that place where life isn't an assumption to be taken for granted, but a gift to be cherished, we discover that our prayers have already found their way into the heart and mind of God. Our God is the God of the weak, the vulnerable, and the oppressed. Our God is the God of the sick, the starving, and the destitute. 
Our faith teaches us that those who live on the edge of existence are the ones who dwell closest to the heart of God. We fast, therefore, not to pretend that we are marginalized, but to remember who our God is and where our God is to be found. We fast not to get God's attention, but to return to the place where God has always been. Most religions, including many variations of our own, teach that God responds to the prayers of the pious, the truly faithful, who succeed in convincing God to grant their petitions because of their performance of holiness. If that were the case, we would expect God to answer those who pray the loudest or the best or the most often, but we know that isn't true. Our faith teaches us that God responds to the prayers of the needy, of those who depend most on God's mercy and grace. If we believe that, if we really believe that God's heart belongs to those who live on the edge of life, then our religious practices won't be a matter of convincing God to hear us, but of convincing one another that those who pursue the welfare of the poor and oppressed are the ones who pursue the heart of God. Is not this the fast that I choose, the prophet Isaiah declares on God's behalf, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Our religious practices only make sense if they are fully integrated and fully reflected in our daily lives. If we believe what we claim to believe about God, then our fasting and our prayers and our worship and our formation and our stewardship and everything we do as a congregation in the name of God must be about pursuing God where God is to be found. That pursuit must be our daily practice. Our God abides with those who dwell on the very edge of life itself. Our piety, therefore, must take us there. And when it does, in the words of the prophet, our light shall break forth like the dawn and the healing of the world shall spring up quickly. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.